Morning, everybody. Thanks, Maggie, for introducing that song to us. I am Tim, one of the pastors here. Welcome to North Suburban Church, especially if this is your first time with us. Uh, if you have been attending North Sub for some length of time, and you're like, hey, I think I'm ready to say this is my church, um, we're fired up about that. There's a term that we have for what happens next after you start feeling that way. It's called church membership. So just a quick plug for that. Uh, becoming a member of a church is when you say, this is my church. I'm going to embrace some level of ownership and investment in this family. right? And I want this family to consider me one of them officially. And of course, you know, as, as modern people, as North Shore people, there's part of us that pushes back against that, that resists that some, right? We don't want to commit to just one church because if this is my church, then that means that other church isn't my church in the same way, at least, right? So, so isn't it better to keep all options open? Um, we kind of think here at North Sub that the richer experience is found in the biblical pattern of committing to just one local congregation and investing deeply in its flourishing as that congregation invests deeply in your flourishing, so that's why if you're not a member, you'll probably be getting a call this week or an email from one of the elders or staff members asking you to consider attending our church membership class next Sunday. Uh, hope you'll consider at least spending that hour with me after church next Sunday so I can make my best case for what church membership is all about. Let's pray and get into the word together. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say... And let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's a certain feeling of desperation when you're taking a standardized test and watching the time run out, but you're not close to being done. Or when you're watching the battery run out on your phone, but you've been separated from your friends in a crowd. Anybody been there? or when you're watching the fuel gauge hit zero on a country road when there's no gas station for miles ahead. It's running out. And sometimes the stakes are higher. And this is what some right here are facing this very morning. This is when you're out of work, watching your savings run out, when there's no job on the horizon. This is when you're scrolling through your contacts on your phone, looking for anyone you can call, but you're not really sure you have any real friends left. Or it's when the bad news just keeps hitting over and over again, wave after wave, such that it has you wrecked, exhausted, and as you're looking at your bandwidth meter, it's running out. You've done everything in your power not to let it run out. There's just nothing left to try. Today's scripture invites us into a moment in the life of a man who was similarly out of options as he watched his own hope run out. Would you turn with me to John chapter 2, if you haven't already? There's Bibles in the seat in front of you. You can use a Bible app. John chapter 2, you want to be there with us. This scripture text kicks off a new sermon series for us here at North Sub. We're going to spend the rest of the year 2022, actually, in John's Gospel. And when I say John's gospel, I mean the gospels are just these four biblical accounts of the life of Jesus recorded from four different perspectives, each of which sheds light on different aspects of who Jesus is, 
John's gospel is the last of the four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? Both in our Bibles and probably in terms of when it was written. John, the author, writes as an eyewitness to the events that he's recording. He was one of Jesus' inner circle of followers. And John, actually, he breaks from the structure and style of the first three Gospels to give us the most unique of the four accounts. There's more theological commentary here, you might say, than any others. More color, for lack of a better word, to go along with the basic play-by-play given by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. By the end of the book, John tells us his reason for including what he includes in this account and for leaving out what he leaves out. Here it is in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples who are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, to people who had been waiting for the Messiah, the Son of God, who would come and rescue them, John says, hey, I've made my authorial decisions here in terms of what to include in this book in order to make it plain to you, my readers, that Jesus is the one you've been looking for. Two of the primary ways that John attempts to communicate that in his gospel is, one, through these seven signs, and two, through these seven I am statements, signs and statements that he records along the way. The seven signs, they're miracles, you might call them, but not just miracles like cool tricks Jesus does. It's, it's more, they're public actions that have symbolic meaning, each revealing in its own way that Jesus, this isn't just another great teacher or religious guru. Glory belongs to this guy, Jesus, and we'll unpack that word glory over the course of the coming weeks. So that's the signs, and then the seven statements, as for them, they all start with I am, and then in each of the seven, Jesus uses a metaphor to show us a glimpse of some aspect of what kind of Messiah he is. So we intend to preach through the seven signs and seven statements as they show up in John's gospel throughout the way. So that means that early in the fall we'll have more signs and later in the fall we'll have more statements, but there'll be some intermixing. And today we're going to explore Jesus' first sign. In John chapter 2, we're going to pick up the story there uh, at a wedding actually, just down the road from Jesus' hometown. But if we had taken the time to read chapter 1, we'd see that this wedding actually concludes a pretty eventful week of events for the 30-year-old Jesus. So just to recap chapter 1, so we're up to date here. Jesus' cousin John, who's not the author of this book, a different John, gets interrogated by religious authorities. Then the next day, that same John tells his followers, of which he had many, that Jesus, his cousin, is the awaited Messiah. The day after that, two of John's followers leave John to follow Jesus. John's happy about that. The next day, one of those two recruits his brother to be a third follower of Jesus. Now Jesus has three. The next day, Jesus calls one of their hometown friends to be his fourth follower. And so when we pick up, we're on the third day, John tells us, from that day, which is the seventh day together. So John's given us a nice rounded out week here. And we pick up the story at a wedding where Jesus is going to go public, so to speak, by performing his first sign. So I'm going to read the whole story now. John 2, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll work through it piece by piece. Follow along with me. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. 
What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you've kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The story that we've just read unfolds in four parts, each of which has implications for us. We'll see a bridegroom's problem, a mom's idea, Jesus' fix, and a disciple's response. First, the bridegroom's problem. Uh, it's verses 1 through 3, and there it is, right at the beginning of verse 3, the problem, the wine ran out. Let's back up for a second. Jesus is at a wedding. Jewish weddings, they were several day long, joy-filled parties, right? And Jesus is okay with that? Well, he and his disciples are there, right? Eating food, drinking wine, presumably singing, dancing, right? With everybody else. This, that setting for the story, I think, is worth a brief pause, even right at the beginning, for a moment of reflection, because... I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel guilty. And here's what I mean. I'll, I'll give you a little transcript. I'll let you in on a transcript of the guilty thoughts I'm talking about in my mind. Right? Here's what I start thinking. People are dying today. Eternity is at stake. What's wrong with me that I just watched a three-hour-long football game? Right? Or what's wrong with me that I just played several rounds of this board game with my neighbors? When there's so much going on, so much at stake. Seeing Jesus at this wedding recalibrates my conscience uh, a bit. As I'm reminded, Jesus, he loves my joy. Right? Uh, he loves to see human joy. God designed us for joy. And as a human, Jesus wholeheartedly joined in our earthy human joy with us. Despite the fact that he knew all along that his ultimate purpose on earth was to address the most serious of all problems by dying the most cursed of all deaths. He knew that, yet he goes to wedding parties anyway, right? Thinks that's worth his time. So, you know where that makes me want to go? It, it makes me want to grab the bull by both horns, so to speak, meaning I want to have, on one hand, the most rich, joy-filled life of anybody around, filled with the kind of belly laughter that can only be consistently enjoyed by someone who possesses, on the other hand, a rock-solid grounding regarding the most serious of life's questions. The joy and the seriousness together. That was Jesus. So Now back to Jewish weddings. So as the bridegroom at a Jewish wedding, it was your responsibility to provide, period. You got to make sure that the party supplies are kept stocked, that everybody's got the food and drink and everything else they need for the duration of the party. It's on you, bridegroom. 
Your reputation and standing in the community are on the line. You don't disrespect people by inviting them to celebrate you at your wedding and then failing to provide for them. But this unnamed bridegroom here does fail to provide. The wine runs out. And this isn't just, uh, yeah, I remember, I ran out of gas once. That was embarrassing. This is, this is red alert level 10. People will be talking about this for the rest of your life if you let the wine run out as a, bri as a bridegroom. Right? There's even some evidence that brides' families may have attempted to sue a few times in this situation. How could this bridegroom let this happen? We don't know, right? Maybe more guests showed up than RSVP'd. Been that guest before, oops. Maybe he did the math wrong or got lazy or careless, right? Maybe his money just ran out and he knew he was going to be short, but he just didn't have the resources to purchase any more wine. We don't know, right? But as one pastor pointed out, maybe it's better that we don't know why this bridegroom's wine supply runs out because now the story is relatable to all of us who have gotten ourselves into some version of the same situation, but for all sorts of different ideas, for reasons, right? So, so haven't some of us seen our hope running out because of unexpected circumstances out of our control? But hasn't it also sometimes been because of our own negligence? And sometimes hasn't it just been that we did our best, but we didn't have the resources? John doesn't seem all that interested in telling us why the wine ran out, because on one level it doesn't matter, right? However this bridegroom ended up in this full sweat, major crisis situation, that's where he is. And the only question that really matters now is, is there anybody at this party who can rescue this bridegroom from disaster? Is there? Yeah. And listen... On, in light of the fact that Jesus knows that he ultimately came to die a death that would address our ultimate problem of sin, I don't know about you, but there's something strangely comforting to me that the first miracle Jesus decides to do is to save a bridegroom from social embarrassment. Here's what that communicates to me. It communicates to me, Tim, your problems are not too small for Jesus to care about. The mini crisis that you're in this morning, no matter how you got there, it matters to Jesus. Rescuing you from that pickle you're in, that matters to Jesus. It's not beneath him to step into that with you. He's always stepped into those places with his people. So question, do you believe that Jesus can do something about what's running out, so to speak, in your life this morning? And do you believe that Jesus cares enough to do something about what's running out in your life this morning. Mary believes both, that Jesus can and that Jesus cares, so she's got an idea, mom's idea. This is where she uh, alerts Jesus to the problem. He seems to say no at first to helping, but then she turns and tells the servants, do whatever he tells you, right? So question, when Mary tells Jesus, they don't have any wine. Is she hoping he's going to do a miracle? I don't know. I, it's quite possible that she doesn't actually have any such expectation. Right? Given the big deal John's going to make in a few verses, that this is Jesus' first miracle. Right? 
On the other hand, at this point, she spent 30 years sitting on a wild promise from an angel that her not-yet-born son, Jesus, was going to save the world. Right? So, and then you factor in that the week leading up to this wedding, her nephew, Jesus' cousin, has told his massive throng of followers his cousin Jesus is the Messiah they should really follow. The buzz is growing. Maybe what we're seeing from Mary here is something like, Jesus, it's time. You went public. I've been waiting 30 years. Let's go, right? We don't know. But at minimum, it's safe to say that she has grown accustomed to relying on her firstborn son. Her husband Joseph is almost certainly dead at this point. Uh, based on church tradition and based on hints in the text itself, Mary has leaned on Jesus to keep the family afloat. And time and time again, he has proved himself amazingly reliable. Right? So it could just be as simple as that for Mary in verse 3. Right? Hey, this is a stressful situation, but let's ask Jesus. He always seems to have a solution that we didn't think of. Then Jesus' response to his mom it's a bit shocking to us, right? But not just because well, we modern people don't talk to our moms in this way. Actually, it would, have been, it would have shocked people to hear Jesus talk to his mom like this in his own day, scholars tell us, right? So, so what does that have to do with you and me, woman? Scholars generally agree this would have been like one of us saying to our moms today, ma'am, why are you involving me? That's like trying to pick up on the, the idiom and how it would have been perceived at the time. Uh, to clarify, it's not that it's rude, right? If hypothetically any parent of young children here has had the experience of your children yelling demands at you at the top of their lungs by your first, middle, and last name out in your front yard as the neighbors walked by, I won't comment on whether I have experienced that <laughs> this week. But in any event, Jesus' words here are not that. It's not rude. Uh, scholars agree. It wouldn't have been perceived as rude. But they're not what we would expect either. Not what they would have expected from someone who loves his mother like Jesus loves his mother. Ma'am, why are you involving me? These words are intended to create distance between himself and his mom, at least for a moment. And the question is why? Like, sure, his hour hasn't yet come, and in John's gospel, his hour is always the hour of his death, right? So that hasn't come, great. But Jesus, why do you have to say it this way? Here's why. Because it needed to be clear to Mary, to everyone present, and to us as readers, that none of us can twist Jesus' arm into doing what we want. None of us, right? Not even Jesus' birth mom gets to set Jesus' agenda. Jesus is Lord. And if anyone wants to be saved, even Jesus' mom, she's going to have to come to him as Lord. Do you know how hard it must have been for Mary to hear, ma'am, why are you involving me? What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Do you know how hard it must have been for Mary to let go of her desire to be treated by her son like a normal mom gets to be treated by her son? 
but she does let go. And I think D.A. Carson nails it when he summarizes it this way. In chapter 2, verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In chapter 2, verse 5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. What does it look like for a mother to come to her son no longer primarily as a mother, but primarily as a believer in him? It looks like this. Do whatever he tells you. After receiving a mild rebuke from your son, responding with, hey, do whatever he tells you. What more fitting words are there to capture the sort of faith that Jesus calls for from his followers? Not just from Mary, but from all of us. Do whatever he tells you. When people come before Jesus expectant that he will save and eager to do whatever he tells us, that's when he so often chooses to respond with his transforming power. Do whatever he tells you. That's a difficult phrase to live by, though. Because sometimes what he tells us makes no sense at first. Right? Or it's costly or it's risky. But will we do whatever he tells us? Let's see what happens. Jesus is fixed. Verses 6 through 10. This is the part where he has the jars filled with water. Then he turns the water into wine, right? Great. So, do you ever think, though, why does he do it this way? For example, why not skip the whole water part? Right? Like, wouldn't it have been just as amazing if he was like, if it, if it ended up being like, dude, this wine container was empty, but now it's miraculously refilled? How'd that happen? Right? That's a miracle, right? Why not that? For that matter, second why question. Why create so much wine? So much. Right? Jesus makes 120 to 180 gallons of wine here. That's nearly 1,000 bottles. Right? That's an obscene amount of wine for the size party this would have been. Why the overkill? One more why question. Why such good wine? Right? That's what stands out to the head waiter. This is the best wine we've had the whole party. I think the answer to these questions has everything to do with the fact that Jesus isn't just performing a miracle here. He's performing a sign, to use John's word. Right? That means it's not just a party trick. Every aspect of what happens here has deep significance. Right? It's meant to show something. So, going back through those three, why water into wine? Well, notice in verse 6, it's not just any water. It's water for Jewish purification. So by transforming the water meant for Jewish purification into the wine that saves the party, Jesus is sending a message about the era that he's about to usher in, in which purification will now come about in a new way, not by ritual washing anymore, but by his blood. The old way, in other words, of Jewish law and custom is about to be superseded by something better than ritual. But then what about that second question, why so much wine? Again, I think he's teaching us something about the nature of the kingdom that he's about to usher in. The blessings that flow under the reign of King Jesus, the Son of God. It's almost comical how abundant the blessings are in Jesus' kingdom. 
producing 180 gallons of wine is a silly, almost silly response to this problem, right? It's running over a spider with a tank. But that's what Jesus wants us to know. When we come to him in our moments of desperation and lack, the one that we're crying out to is never short of resources to provide for us. Not at all, right? Like, all it takes for him is to pull the lever, so to speak, and the floodgates of heaven will open for us. Blessings for days. And if, but then finally, what about that last one? Uh, why, why such good wine? I think it's because Jesus wants us to know he's not just providing more of the same that we had before. Just more of it so it won't run out. No, he's providing something new. And in fact, something superior to the old. I love how John Bloom says it. Jesus knew the time for making the real gospel wine of Calvary had not yet come. But this wedding wine poured out of vessels of purification foreshadowed that best of all wines, which would be served after humans had done their sinful, insufficient best to meet their need and failed. There's so much here for us in verses 6 through 10, but just think about one other layer of this with me for a moment, namely the significance of this as Jesus' first public sign. The first one sets a tone. Like when King Charles III stepped to the microphone for the first time as king on Friday. Everybody listening was eager to learn what can we expect from the reign of this king. Whatever first words you choose in that moment are going to set a tone. And Jesus' first sign, I think, functions something like that. If we could summarize the tone that is set by Jesus' first sign, maybe it's something like Jesus saying, hey, here's what to expect. From now on, there will be one way to be made pure. For those who accept the purification that I offer, blessing will flow without end, and you'll be filled with unspeakable joy, not to mention that you will never, ever be left lacking anything you need. As N.T. Wright summarizes, the wedding is a foretaste of the great heavenly feast in store for God's people. The water jars used for Jew- Jewish purification rites are a sign that God is doing a new thing from within the old Jewish system, bringing purification to Israel and the world in a whole new way. But to receive the blessing, we need to respond with faith. And that is how the disciples respond. Take a look with me again at verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him belief that's what all these signs are meant to produce if you remember the purpose statement from chapter 20 that we looked at at the beginning interestingly we're going to see in the coming weeks that while john explicitly tells us for the first two signs hey this is the first sign hey this is the second sign he then leaves us on our own to figure out the rest what they were and how many there are yet numbered and unnumbered Each sign in this gospel points to Jesus' glory in hopes of producing belief. Take a look at chapter 211 and that purpose statement in chapter 20 side by side. You see the commonalities there about belief being the point of what it is. Caveat, though. Seeing a sign doesn't necessarily lead to belief. For example, the servants. 
knew where the wine had come from, according to verse 9, but it's unclear whether they believed like the disciples did. It's possible that they may have seen the sign, but not the glory. And that's the thing about these signs. Because of their symbolic nature, some can perceive the glory revealed by the sign, others miss it. And nowhere will that be more true than at the cross, where Jesus' glory will be revealed in its most clear form. Some will look on that cross and perceive the glory being revealed there. To others, it'll just seem like another gruesome public execution. But in the chapters leading up to the cross in John's gospel, we, have, we, we who have eyes to see are given by John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, a glimpse of that great glory to come in each of these signs. Since the point of a sign is to produce belief, I'd be remiss not to ask again at this point in the text, do you believe? And I'm not just asking intellectually, do you affirm that Jesus existed and was the Messiah? That's important. What I'm really asking is, have you seen the glory of Jesus yet in such a way that you're ready to trust him with your life? To trust him in a I'll do whatever you say type of way. Because that's the sort of belief that his disciples ended up placing in him. Our big idea today is this. Let's trust Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom, whose transforming power is sufficient to supply all we're lacking. Did you catch what I called him there, the ultimate bridegroom? That's because if you were to peek ahead to the very next chapter, you'd see that he's going to identify himself as the bridegroom, the ultimate bridegroom. He's the bridegroom whose wine of joy and blessing never runs out. Because Jesus self-identifies in that way in the next chapter. The second time you read through John's gospel, after you've already read it once, and you get to the wedding in John 2 that we just looked at, you're like, oh, even though Jesus was technically just a guest at this wedding, he was actually telling us here about what kind of bridegroom he is. So let's trust Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom, whose transforming power is sufficient to supply all we're lacking. Let's conclude by circling back to what's running out in your life right now. Whether it feels like time is running out on you, or your patience is running out, or your friendships are running out, or hope is running out, whatever it is that's running out in your life. Two simple questions. One, do you believe that Jesus has the resources needed to supply what you lack? In other words, do you believe he can? Secondly, if so, do you believe that Jesus cares about your need enough to step in and supply what you lack? Do you believe he can? Do you believe he cares? If you feel like you've heard me ask some version of those two questions before, it's because you have. There aren't many questions more important than those two of whether God can and whether God cares. And this person, on a personal note, this hit me around age 26, I think it was, when I realized, wait a minute, everything that goes wrong in my life and in my relationship with God has started with me either disbelieving that God can or disbelieving that God cares. That's the time in my life when I started 
praying in the way that you now hear me start so many of my prayers. Lord, you're big, which means he can. And you love us, which means he cares. If I could just believe those two things, like to the core of my being, why would I ever freak out? Why would I ever turn to sinful means of satisfaction? I wouldn't. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help me, help us to believe that you can and that you care. Maybe one final danger to be aware of as we respond to the scripture text. Don't keep turning to ritual and think that you're turning to Jesus. Here's what that might look like, right? I'm going to go to church more so that God will forgive my sins. I'm going to volunteer more so that God will answer my prayers, right? Good things in themselves, but once we make them into purifying rituals, so to speak, like those water jars, they become worthless. To turn to ritual is to settle for the old water. But if we'll come to Jesus himself, not just to religious rituals, Jesus, he will give us the blessing of abundant, delicious wine to gladden our hearts and to enlarge our joy. Let's pray.